Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Becky. And this is How to Not Get Killed. Yeehaw. <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't think of anything good. <laughs> I was air drumming, so. I don't know where I got yeehaw from. <laughs> I have no explanation. Is it, is it, are we, we're going, we're turning into a country podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Howdy. <laughs> I do always say howdy. Yeah. Like, when you? I, yeah. I don't know. Like whenever, I, whenever it's me typing to like the patrons on Patreon, like mm. I usually oh, yeah. started howdy. off by saying howdy. You do. Yeah. You do. So that's how you guys can tell if it's me typing or Haley. Like if it sounds like some freaking losers typing saying like, howdy, <laughs> it's it's me. And I'm like, hi. You're like, hi, guys. Hey. <laughs> hi, how are you? I should come up with something better. I should be like, what's up? Yeah, what's up is better. <laughs> what's up is better. Those are going to be our taglines then. Howdy, howdy what's and what's up? up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what news we have for today. What week is this coming out? Like what, what do we got going on? What's is what's this, what's gonna be news in the future? This will be coming out. I think this will be coming out the day that I'm leaving. Yes, is it? Yeah, yeah. I'm leaving. I'll be flying. So if to anyone Amsterdam. wants to stalk her, I'll tell you exactly what airport she'll be at. <laughs> <laughs> Flight number and everything. <laughs> yeah, our our dearest Haley's going on a trip without I me. Am. It's I very am. rude, but I'm going on an adventure. Very disrespectful of you to not bring me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'll you forgive should come. you. You just show up. I, yeah, I feel like I could. You could. I oh, could. especially in Italy. Oh my gosh, my oh, family yeah. would be like, "Oh yeah, no, the more the merrier." I we made enough food for a thousand, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is just enough for me. There won't be leftovers. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Oh my gosh, yeah. I was just telling someone the other day about because, like, you know, I have to prep Luke as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it, like italians are very they're so generous and obviously like food is their life like food. it's food is art like it's like you eat it you consume it but it's just like you have to enjoy it as well you spend all day making these dishes and things like that and when you go it's like if you go to a restaurant it's sometimes it's a bit different but when you go to someone's house like you never know how much is going to come out of that kitchen oh god like so you don't know how to pace yourself because like i remember like one of the first times i went and we went to like a, fa- a relative's house and there's like you know like um meats and cheeses and stuff and like olives oh and like bread a chikuchimi and- board or whatever yeah. your mom calls <laughs> chikuchimi boards <laughs> <Yeah>. rose <laughs> um and then there was like uh soup and then there was um couple of other things and then they brought out a lasagna and i'm like well that's probably the main you know and then they bring out like meat and i'm like oh okay so there's another main oh (laughs) then they bring out like a different kind of lasagna and then more meat and then something and i'm like oh my god i don't know when it's i don't know when it's gonna end you know (laughs) and then there's like eight different desserts and then there's coffee and then there's the liqueurs you know the limoncello and all that stuff and it's like so i was saying to luke this thing that i figured out because you start to notice that if your plate is empty then they're like, oh, you ate, you ate all of it. You loved you must, it. You want more. You must be starving. You must be starving. Yes. You must want more. <laughs> You're not fully fed. And so they'll like, they'll be like more and they'll just like slap it on your plate. Right. Because if you say no, then they're like, oh, you didn't like it. <laughs> Jail. <laughs> I'm like, and I'm like, no, no, no. I loved it. I ate all of it. They're like, you, so you don't like it. You don't, you don't want more. And I'm You're like, like oh, okay, just, a, maybe just a little bit. So I started to leave like a little like almost like one bite of like everything on my plate oh so they so don't it, it still looks like you're still like moron. picking at it like yeah. you're still eating or whatever and sometimes not all the time but sometimes you won't get offered more <laughs> sometimes i was like this is my strategy it might not work luke but 
Uh, it sounds like a like a pretty good strategy. Yeah, sometimes I've I've had some success. Some. Sometimes no, you still got to roll me out of there. Ah, <laughs> uh, this sounds like heaven for me. I'm coming. You I'm should. coming. Yeah. It's happening. Shout out to my I'm, family in Naples. Yeah. I'm invited. In I'm, Italy. Oh. It's it's happening. Yeah. Also, I like for the past 2 minutes now I've felt a sneeze coming on, so if I sneeze, guys, I'm sorry. Just like warning you, I'm not gonna pause it. I'm just gonna sneeze. I'm just gonna like fine. rip roar into the <laughs> mic. <laughs> I was gonna say you could turn away, yeah. but you know what? Right into the mic. No, yeah, yeah. And just... I'm gonna do like one of those like and then Drake dad... can echo that. Yeah, I'm gonna do one of the like dad sneezes where it's like ah, Joe. You know, you know how they like always love it when it's like sneeze not at you. It's like some other sound that someone makes. I love that. It's like a scream, and then it's just like the grossest thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm all congested, guys, in case you haven't heard. I took a test. You, I'm negative. It's you, fine. You don't, it's you just, don't like, to be honest, you don't sound that congested. I feel like I, I know it. you feel like it, but yeah, you don't like sound. Because <laughs> you know when you're like, ears are all plugged up and you're like, oh, this is congestion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I know. I get a lot in my sinuses too. Yes. I find that I get a lot, like sometimes when I'm sick, I'll wake up and feel like there's so much pressure yeah. in the front of my face. You almost face. need like to just like gonna... push it and explode it out your eyes. Yeah. Like yeah. I'll like press onto it because I'm like, oh, will it just like... <laughs> just massaging it it, just release it i don't know it's i feel like that could work i don't know i do it sometimes i don't know scientifically it probably works i feel like it must (laughs) must. you just gotta get that yeah you just gotta get the fluids rolling (laughs) now that we're done talking about mucus yeah (laughs) i mean if that wasn't like sexy enough for you guys um we have two new patrons to welcome Whoop, whoop, whoop. All right. So first up, we want to say hello to Alice Aubin. Hello, Alice. Hi, Alice. Alice is actually from like the like fiber like knitting community. Um, she wanted me to shout out her her uh, handle on Instagram, Absolutely. which is really cool. So of course. go follow her because I love all of my knitting and crochet people. Yeah, we should all so be following if, each other. Exactly. So if, if you're sitting here and you're like, oh, well, I don't know about the knitting and crochet community. Get the fuck into it. Get into it and go follow everybody in the knitting crochet community. I also just starting um, with me, but you- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, Becky Clo Designs. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also do want to say that after my hacking incident on Instagram, yeah, I want to apologize if like they blocked or unfollowed anyone or whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to keep track of that, but I don't yeah, it's know. Too difficult. Like the blocking, I can unblock those people, but yeah. like they unfollowed a bunch of people, and like it's hard for me to remember Weird. like who. Who's who. in like the hundreds of people that i follow where it's yeah. like i don't anyways just wanted anyone to know if Haley's not just rude yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> she I just, just, stop just unfollow a bunch of people because i'm lame <laughs> so she is crochet dot by dot a l a u so follow her on instagram she's got cool crochet stuff heck yeah stuff stuff so Oh, she's also like from quebec which is cool she's french as heck love it french as heck french as heck yeah. Also, thank you for giving me a pronunciation guide because you knew I was going to mess that up. So appreciate you on a whole different level. We always appreciate things being spelled phonetically. Yeah. Especially me. And I do. I love that. Like now when people sign up, they're like, here, this is for you because we know you're going to fuck it up. <laughs> Name, names are hard. Names are hard. You know what shouldn't have happened, though, with my name? Is that I called a repair company a couple of weeks ago. Oh, no. (laughs) For our our washer. Our washing machine was broken. Uh Uh-oh. Which is like Her clothes are really stinky, guys. Essential. You should (laughs) see the pile of laundry in our bedroom right now. I don't want to see it. Um... And I called and then they took my name and whatever. And my email is like basically just my name with like a couple extra characters and stuff. So 
every time I say my name on the phone, my last name, Giles, yeah. I always spell it out. Because like G-I-L-E-S, like there are other ways you could spell it. Like sometimes there's a double L or something like that. Which is but lame. If you have a double L and your last name is Giles, go and get your name changed immediately. Yeah. I don't I mean, approve. It's And I feel like it should... <laughs> it, it, probably has a bit of a different pronunciation like it could be jillies right because i get that i get that pronunciation a lot but i don't mine is giles that. oh i don't either <laughs> what i definitely don't approve of no. is the fact that when the guy came to inspect our washing machine to then like give us the quote and everything like that okay. whatever and then they're like you'll get it emailed an invoice and blah blah blah. and like two weeks had gone by and i was like i haven't heard from this company i haven't okay. gotten an email and i called them and they were like oh yeah we've been waiting on you to like let us know that you want us to go ahead and i was like of course i want to go ahead yeah. my washing machine's been broken yeah. for two weeks i've been wearing the same underwear for two <laughs> weeks like hauling it over to my mom's or like <laughs> luke's brother's house um and then I and then I find out because I didn't get that invoice either. And I call back and I was like, what what do you have written down as my email? Oh, the first person who took my name, even though I spelled it out for her twice. No. Spelled it J-Y-L-E-S. No, that's not even close. Why would you ever think that it would be that spelling? Jyless? J-Y. Who's ever? No, that's not. Isn't that bizarre? I... I that doesn't make sense. <laughs> okay, thank you. I'm glad that's that's like quite me. a leap. Like I understand, like yeah, making like the small. I just feel error like you would type that out and it it looks it would wrong. Look wrong. It looks wrong. Or I'd repeat it back and be like, "Are you sure about this one?" Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and on top they're like, "Whoa, spelling error." I'm like, "Yeah, but I spelled it out for her twice, though." That's what kind of gets me. If yeah. I just said Giles, then whatever. I'd be like, "That's <laughs> weird spelling," but yeah, I always spell it out, and now you guys know why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I feel like I'm in the same boat for obvious reasons. My last name is impossible. Hence why I've had to shorten it on almost all platforms. Yeah. It's just too much. No one should have a Z in their last name. <laughs> Nobody should have a Z in their last name. Especially when it's wedged between two other consonants. Or is that the beginning? I can't remember. I can it's never in the remember. Middle. It's in the I middle, don't right? even know. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know. <laughs> it's just, it's not right. It's wrong. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I feel like Eastern European last names are difficult yeah they can be so, difficult yeah it's just a no so our second patron i'd like to welcome is my good friend jess bricker hi yes. jess hi jess she's she's like low-key obsessed with us and also we're obsessed with her yeah i haven't even met her but yeah her and i became I'm friends down. just like sporadically one day i was working at the Knicks warehouse sale event mm -hmm. and then like her and her friend lee who's also my friend now too i've got two new friends oh guys i know this is like fucking shocking for me I'm just making friends i know left, right and center. well the other day when i went to go visit them i like told linda on the way out i was like i'm gonna go meet up with some friends and she like paused and looked at me like you're what <laughs> and i was like <laughs> I have friends now <laughs> like, that live that like live close, close yeah. to me. Because like yeah, whenever that's... I'm like, oh, I'm going to go visit friends. You're like, okay, who are you hopping on a plane to see? Now? Yeah, I'm flying to Vancouver. Yeah, flying honestly. to Moose Jaw. <laughs> like that's what they expect to hear is me being like, I'm leaving to go to Saskatchewan now. Like, <laughs> but so, yeah, Jess is a patron now. And so we wanted to do like an extra special shout out because so we named you guys all Minions, right? And Jess messaged the other day and came up with an even better name to refer to our minions. Oh, yeah. And both Haley and I were like, this is why she entered our lives. Oh, yeah. She, and I knew this would happen. I, I said this. It. I was like, I knew this would happen. I knew we'd pick a name. Yeah. And we were like, you know what? That's good enough. And then something, something was going to come along. And you know what? That's okay. We'll still say minions here and there. But I think this is going to take the cake. This is the new one. Sleaze balls. 
sleaze balls because we say keep sleaze. Yeah. Just end this episode right now. <laughs> That's it. We're done. Yeah. Is that actually just, this yeah. is this was what this was all about? This is just it. <laughs> <laughs> or sleaze bags. I also like sleaze bags, but sleaze balls is like number one. Yeah. I like sleaze balls. Yeah. I know you do. I do. I do. I do. It's good. I don't know, guys. Let us know what you think, but like we're really excited about it. Yeah. I feel like that makes sense. It makes sense. It just makes sense. Yeah. Sleaze balls. Yeah. Because we just. And are. if you don't like our horrifyingly offensive patron names, like don't. Don't fucking worry about it. Just deal with it. Because they, they are horribly offensive, but I love it. That's why I we did it. I love them. They're perfect. perfect. Sewer rats, garbage people. The only one that's like not horribly offensive is VIP little bitch asses. <laughs> it's also a bit offensive though. No, <laughs> bitch asses is a compliment in my book. <laughs> all of them are compliments yeah. in my book. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's why I'm like, you know, they all, they're all yeah. they all on the same level. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. how we compliment people is with like insults. Mm-hmm. It's out of love. <laughs> keeps you humble yeah it's like, i love your little bitch ass <laughs> yeah i love that little bitch ass of yours <laughs> you little sewer rat <laughs> i love it all right well i think that's all for news okay should we get to it yeah i'm just gonna sit back and enjoy this case okay uh <laughs> or enjoy or hate maybe it. yeah <laughs> <laughs> or hate every minute of it we are we are back for another bleeding london whoop series case whoop that's the sound of the police <laughs> um this one this one takes place this one is included in um the forest city killer and murder city because i don't know if this takes place in elmer i don't know if that's part of london's census metropolitan area at the time elmer or almer because there's like two close to london and i can never remember which one's which there's an e and an a a a okay a okay oh you are right there is there's two yeah and I always confuse them because I, I feel like I personally pronounce them pretty similarly. I do. And I feel like I have like friends from there and like Elmer is like kind of the way the A one is pronounced too. I yeah. feel like similar. Or like, some people say Elmer. Oh, but I, that that's feels wrong. weird to me. If someone's saying Elmer, Il- you're Ilmer, not allowed to listen but anymore. But <laughs> I just, that takes too much effort. I'm just no. going to say Elmer. Um, but with an A for anyone in the area, A-Y-L-M-E-R. I just wanted to clarify. It is, um, whether it's part of London's census metropolitan area or not, it's an important case and and you'll understand why. But it's included because this happened in this in the same time frame that w- I've been focusing on. And it, uh, Dennis Alsop, the detective I've mm-hmm. always kind of c- gone back and talked about, yeah. is involved. Man, he's um, done everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this guy... <laughs> Yeah, her eyes just we're gonna so hear <laughs> so much more about him but this but he does play a big role in this one too so um and it may or may not be connected to some london cases which oh. is kind of what we're going to get into in later episodes yeah. with like some of the theories that um michael arnfield and vanessa brown have come up with so cool so that's going to be later but this is this is an important case in like the time frame um but it does take place in elmer okay. so for anyone who doesn't know elmer's like 20 30 minutes like not far southeast of yeah. london something, something like, like that, that. it's yeah. not very far no so um the victim in this case is 20 year old georgia jackson hmm. she was a resident of elmer um and she was very active in her community and local church uh, she was part of the jehovah's witness okay and she spent many days and evenings in their um what's called their like kingdom hall mm-hmm. so basically like their church yeah which was also a little... jehovah's witness people are actually like extremely nice anyone that i've yeah. ever met that's like identifies as jehovah's witness like they're very nice people yeah <laughs> they're and very I, nice people. they are really nice yeah. i feel like and i don't want to like blanket anyone of no. course but um 
just the we run-ins were, I've had. There, there, there is talk in this time. This took place in 1966. Um, that you know there was a bit of not tension, but maybe like some pressure, prejudice against Jehovah's Witness because there was other <clears throat> sects of Christianity in Elmer. There was um, right. like Baptists and Presbyterians and United Believers and things like that. So, but I also feel like sometimes. In Christianity, I feel like each sect is kind of like always against one another in a way. Yeah. You know, like we've like got guys Protestants and together. Anglicans and Catholics and all that's, you know, so it doesn't really surprise me. Yeah. Um, but yes, there it sounds like there they were a bit of like a secluded community. Like okay. they kind of kept to their own and, yeah. you know, they were nice people, but like just didn't, you know, really had their beliefs yeah. and they were a bit different than other people so they were like we're gonna we're just gonna do our own thing we're gonna do our own thing keep and, to ourselves and georgia was very much a part of this she was um she was a very she was described as a very good like wholesome girl just like you're kind of like oh. everyday girl next door uh, yeah she was described as chaste and innocent she didn't drink or smoke or swear um she she really like i said stuck to mostly associating with members of the jehovah's witness yeah um and other people in her local community and stuff. But most of her close circle was were Jehovah's Witness members. Um, she was described as quiet and a bit shy, but she found confidence in her faith. And she often would give lectures to some of the young people in her parish. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like just she that just, kind of person. She just you know? sounds so like sweet and just so like wholesome. giving. And, yes. Yeah. And just like good yeah. at her core. Yeah. You know? Like really just in it for the right reasons. Yeah. Like community. That's really yeah. like all yeah. like religion should oh, be about. Sure. It's Absolutely. just like coming together. Like community, like common yeah. values. Yeah. Yeah. Good good values though. Don't have scary values. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Good values. Yes. Yeah. Good values. And uh she yeah, she she just very much believed in like practicing what you preach and that she thought the best way to set an example for some of the other young parishioners was to lead a good pure life herself. Mm -hmm. Um so she um like she still lived with her with her parents at 20 because uh, like they had said they were like we never asked her to stay she just stayed because she was like i don't have a boyfriend i don't have a husband and yeah. i'm not gonna um she didn't want to have sex before marriage yeah. like so they were just like yeah she just stayed with us and yeah. she and you know what nothing wrong with that like yeah. my ass is almost 30 and i'm at my in-laws place so yeah, i mean absolutely, <laughs> like, absolutely. zero judgment on my end yeah and she um <laughs> she had a part-time job she worked at the elmer dairy bar which apparently is like a little almost like an ice cream shop that sells milkshakes and stuff and i guess some dairy bars would serve fast food as well i don't know if this one did but oh. they definitely served she worked at like the ice cream counter basically okay like kind of like 60s, dairy queen because like, like we have cute. like yes i say we like i still work there it's been like over 15 years <laughs> since i've worked there but, but no like, but still burgers, chili dogs yes exa yeah. exactly that like dairy queen's like a big chain version of a dairy bar yeah um, and so the da Elmer Dairy Bar was close to the Highway 73 exit off the 401. Okay. So just like kind of, if you look at the map, like it's not right off the highway. It is like in Elmer. I think Elmer, I know but the area just, too. It would, yeah. it would literally be like 10 minutes off the highway. Yeah. And so it was frequented by locals, but also truckers and traveling salesmen and laborers at the Canadian National Railway yard, which was in Ingersoll. Okay. Yep. So the Canadian National Railway will be mentioned a couple of times in this episode. I'm just going to say the CNR. So when I say the CNR, that's the Canadian yeah, National Railway. because that's a mouthful, so shorten it. That's a lot, yeah. Should we just so, abbreviate everything? Everything. Like only speak in abbreviation. I'm like ABD, 6, Yeah, and seven, then 7, 8, 4, and... CKL, That's like, me abbreviating yeah. something is with numbers, apparently. <laughs> I know, I, I went to numbers, yeah. too. I'm like, now I'm speaking in code. Yeah. <laughs> 
we just do the whole thing in like morris code like tapping on the mics <laughs> that is probably a niche market cool. for that <laughs> yeah let's do this tm continue <laughs> so on february 18th 1966 georgia was working closing shift at the dairy bar mm -hmm. along with the owner um and so she was due to finish work at six i believe she started at 12 so she was working 12 to 6 and um it was february like i said so by six o'clock it would be as you know very dark yeah it would be like almost like nighttime dark at yeah. 6 p.m in ontario in february yeah i feel like even sometimes five o'clock it starts that's getting what i was dark. gonna say yeah. it gets dark like around like 5 30 yeah. 5 and then by 5 35 45 it's, it's like, like almost dark midnight so you know it's one of those things to keep in mind because it's sort of like well six o'clock seems early but nighttime is nighttime yeah like if it's dark it's dark and it gets yeah. creepy real fast <laughs> real fast <laughs> basically just don't come to canada <laughs> when i oh my god when i lived in scotland and like in the winter it would get dark at like 3 45 in the really? afternoon i didn't know that it was like i'd be walking home from the bus at like 4 30 and i would be like scared i had like no idea pitch black yeah i didn't know that that happened they're just there. higher up like on the globe than we are so in the dead of winter it would get light at like 9 30 in the morning and then start to get dark at like 3 45 there'd only that's, be like six hours of daylight i was gonna say that's not a, that's not a lot it was weird is that why everyone's like all pale and stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> all pale is that why they're all those pale people just the winter, but then they have really long days in the summer it's the okay. opposite interesting so okay. i think in the summer it gets dark at like 11 man i gotta like go that. back to high school because i just like clearly <laughs> did not pay attention <laughs> uh we just know we know our our daylight savings yeah. and hours and all that but yeah. the rest of the world i'm not sure no no <laughs> definitely not me so um so yeah so it was nighttime it that night it was really windy um there was like blowing snow the temperature by 6 p.m had dropped to negative 12 degrees Oof. So pretty cold. Crisp. Like, it's not the coldest we have, but it's that's pretty cold, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So after closing, she went out into the sort of, you know, like there wasn't very many people on the street. So but it was it was on the main street in Elmer. I'm pretty sure the dairy bar was mm -hmm. to start her walk home. And she lived just four blocks away. A clerk at the Metropolitan store, which is just one block away from the dairy bar, um later told police that she remembered selling georgia a bottle of shampoo sometime after 6 p.m so after she finished work she must have gone to the store to buy the shampoo gotta wash your hair <laughs> you gotta wash your hair yeah, good hygiene a man named terry robinson who knew georgia from the dairy bar says he saw her walking across john street which is like the main street okay away from the metropolitan store toward the direction of her home okay she waved at him um he later told police that uh he that when he saw her it was around 8 30 p.m but uh this is that's long after like people had started looking for her so they figure that he just like got he just didn't know the time yeah and when i'm thinking back on it i'm like if you didn't have a watch this is 1966 You'd so like, like your car is probably not gonna have a time no like you know what i'm saying we don't have cell phones back then so yeah. he probably was like oh yeah i think it was like around 8 30 because like yeah. i said it's dark yeah regardless of whether it was 6 30 or 8 30 it would be dark anyways. and even that is like I, I always wonder too like when i'm asked to recall something i might be able to like recall the event perfectly but if someone was like what time did this happen at i'd be like it could be anywhere between 12 p.m and 12 a.m i have no idea yeah, yeah. like i would have no like, unless you happen to look at an exact time and even still i'd probably Which, like forget said, the time there like, wouldn't have been many available for him to look at back then he also, was just guessing why would you 
I don't know, even take note of time of someone waving at you when yeah. it's just like a regular cruise. You have no, yeah, yeah. no idea that's going to be significant. So yeah. they assumed it was really, truly probably closer to 6.30 at this point. Okay. Because she had just finished work. She'd gone to the store closer to 6.30. Yeah. They don't think it was 8.30. It just doesn't really ma- match up. But um, so by 7 p.m., Georgia still hadn't arrived home for dinner. And like I said, she was only four blocks away. So her parents started to get worried because yeah. they're like, well, she wouldn't. No. Like, she just wouldn't go she somewhere doesn't without seem like telling us, the personality. right? There's a, yeah. there's a phone at the dairy bar. Like, she could have called if she was yeah. going to go somewhere else. She, she could have even called right? at the shop. Like, Yeah. And apparently her mom had called her before and was, like, asking her to get a pound of butter on the way home. And then she was like, actually, the weather's getting really bad. Don't Don't stop for me. So just she stopped up. to get her shampoo, but she didn't stop to get the pound the of butter. butter or anything. Like, her mom had told her, just come straight come home. home. Yeah. So she wasn't home by seven. Her parents sent out her brother and sister to go look for her. Okay. They walked along her regular route. And um, in the meantime, her parents, uh, Virginia and George, uh, called the owner of the dairy bar, William Broad. And she had asked, like, you know, was Georgia still there? Or And he said, no, she left at six. So realizing that you know it was kind of it sounds like it was a bit of a snowstorm like i don't think it was a full-on blizzard but it was cold it was windy yeah it was like a regular storm we normally have here where it's not like shut everything down but just don't go outside maybe yeah william broad was like worried because he's like well if she's missing then it's like this is not the night for it right like she gets lost or something for some reason uh he got in his car and he started looking for her George's brother and sister walked all the way to the Elmer Arena, which was still open for evening hockey practices. Because this is Canada, so like it's always open for evening yeah. hockey practices. I mean, it's open right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no one on their way there or at the arena had seen her. So they got home shortly after 8 p.m., told their parents, nope, like no one's seen her, and they immediately called the police. Mm-hmm. The police in Elmer assured her parents that foul play just was not possible in a small town like elmer no that's always where it's possible i know i'm sorry I but know. small towns are the creepiest also, places like, <laughs> first time for everything yeah honestly <laughs> and uh they said she must have run off run away no. or gone away for the weekend and just not told them that's she, like almost... she'd be back on monday why monday because it was it was a Friday or something, and then well, they're wrong. I, I'm assuming if they said she had gone, they were they were thinking she'd gone away for the weekend. It must have been a Friday, but they were like, yeah, yeah, she's probably fine. She probably just went off. No, which is so I hate. It's that. always infuriating to me. I know we talk about this every time it <laughs> All happens, the time, and but we're it's not like, going to ever stop. By the way, do you think these parents like truly don't know their child? That's like the if thing. this was a troubled girl or something like that, it might be a bit different. Yeah, you know, you couldn't control her or whatever, and she had a history of running off. But most of the time, when we talk about this, these yeah. kids do not have a history of running away. Yeah. They, their parents are like, "There's nothing going on at home." Like we no. would know if she yeah. just ran off there's always warning signs like no matter what no matter how no matter how troubled the kid is or the adult is like there's always going to be like a warning sign that maybe you didn't realize it was a warning sign in the moment that the parents could then be like oh you know what there was this one weird thing yes but if that's not the case then hey how about you look into it so they basically said hey call us back they took a standard report and they said call us back when georgia comes home you assholes yeah i know (laughs) you fucking assholes so basically the the jackson family like gathered up like people in their community mostly jehovah's witnesses and stuff and people that had heard that she was missing and they searched out until midnight but it was 
really dark really cold they couldn't yeah they couldn't figure anything out so they said we'll reconvene the next day so february 19th the overseer at the jehovah's witness kingdom hall so the overseer is kind of like the name for their priest like high priest or something yeah um his name was albert crooker but most accounts call him bert so bert crooker um had made some some calls that night and or that day he made some calls february 19th so the day after she had gone missing and by february 20th over 300 volunteers had shown up from all over the area most of them were jehovah's witnesses but not all of them were just people that word of mouth and stuff and they were like there's a girl missing we need to do some searches that's a strong community yeah yeah i know that's really inspiring Mm -hmm. and um so they they searched all weekend for her by monday february 21st many people had to return home to work and like go back and stuff like that so i think part of the reason why so many people could show up was because it was a weekend yeah um at this point the elmer police still weren't involved in any of the searches like this was just community i'll say it again members assholes yeah (laughs) it's like it's shameful at this point it's it's shameful shameful. it's like well sorry what else are you doing and if if in 1966 in elmer what else is the police department well that's the thing it's not like you guys are out probably solving like some like thousands of other murders or anything like that it's just like you can go help with this missing person case like Like, at least just send like two officers yeah at least i don't know yeah at least like show your faces yeah yeah have a presence yeah you know like especially when the community somehow managed to string together 300 people like you could toss in an officer yeah (laughs) a singular officer it's it's upsetting it's very bizarre too um so two days later george's mom received a phone call she couldn't hear much she said there was like some muffled background noise and she said hello over and over again and she was about to hang up and then she heard a muffled voice say i'm downtown and some men have me oh no this voice was reported to i guess it could have been could have sounded like georgia but like other things i read said it it also could have sounded like it sort of sounded like it could have been a man pretending to be a woman like a man like putting on a high voice okay um but regardless george's mom like freaked out like yeah yeah. you know and she told the police um and they just thought it was like a prank call okay (laughs) if she wasn't missing i'd be like yeah prank call (laughs) but because she's missing and there's also been this phone call maybe it's connected just a thought uh, yeah, I would be alarmed. Like, yeah, yeah, because even if it's a prank call, well, it's some you still have to look it's into it. Still, it's a lead. Is something that should be looked into. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. They just apparently still didn't seem concerned at all, and obviously her family was Who furious. Trained but these people. It's yeah. Well, there's more. Okay. Unfortunately, right. I don't want to be angry. I know it's like it's it's, it's, it's yeah it's come frustrating. On. So over the next few weeks, members of the local community and the Jehovah's Witness Church, um, you know, combed the area, a lot of like farmland yeah. and stuff like that, right? It's Elmer is still a pretty small town. In 1966, it was very small, yeah. surrounded by a lot of like county roads, yeah. farmland, things like that. So they were searching. The first thing they found now in Murder City and Forest City Killer, it's switched that there's two items that were found. And I, the order of which one was found first is different in both books. So okay. I'm just going to go with one. But basically, they found George's scarf. It apparently okay. had blood on it. It okay. looked like it had been, like, tossed out the window of a car or okay. something like that, like a moving car. Just, like, on car. the side of the road or something, yeah. Yeah, on Highway 73 is where they found it. And then they found her peacoat that she was wearing that night covered in blood okay um they discovered it behind a tree off of a different county road 
and there was also semen on it. Oh, fuck. Ugh. Yeah. Bad news. Yeah, that's... They couldn't definitively determine if it was Georgia's blood because um, as she was a Jehovah's Witness, she had never been blood typed. Okay. But it's probably safe to assume. I'd assume. Yeah. That it's either hers or like someone who attacked her. Like, you know? Yeah. So the police... I guess sort of started to take things more seriously after oh, this. Oh, really? Oh, good. But they still, at this point, no. they still weren't convinced it was foul play. Really? You're finding blood and semen. That's like... I know. I'm like, that's... That seems pretty fucking foul to me. Yeah. Oh. So, and again, remember, this is a girl who was like, lived at home with her parents, yeah. did not date. Like, very like, sheltered, not, like, very... Very like, chaste, like she would sorry but she wouldn't have been out like screwing around no with some random dude no like it just she wasn't it's not her personality type like it's not yeah um so the local police had to begin an investigation because word had spread at this point it had been weeks and the opp criminal investigation bureau which included dennis alsop okay. had now gotten involved good so they're like we're coming and getting involved yeah. Because we've been hearing about this girl who's been missing and we you guys are no investigation happening. You guys are your assholes. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> like what you guys are, you are doing, doing nothing. <laughs> so this was now two weeks after she had gone missing. The official search by law enforcement had had happened two weeks after she'd gone missing. That's the first like official police search that and two weeks was is initiated. a long time. Long time. Like you've missed your window there. Yeah. Um, the OPP posted a $500 reward for anyone who oh. found Georgia alive or deceased. That's not enough money. So I, I, I put this in the conversion thing online. So that's about $4,500 today. So okay, it's not, yeah, it's not like $50,000, but it's, I don't know. It's yeah, something. I don't know why I always get hung up. on it like, cause like we've talked about this before. We're like, that's not like enough. It's like and valuing like, someone's life. Yeah. yeah. But it was the OPP that did it. And, um, the Elmer police, yeah, didn't contribute no. anything to it. Many people did come forward with sightings and tips because back then, you know, so there would have been a lot of money back then. Um, yeah. None of them really turned up anything useful. And it was well known. The police kind of understood now. and But members of George's family definitely were saying that she never, ever would have gotten into a car with someone she did not know. No. It, d- it doesn't seem like that. No. So they're like, well, is it someone in the community? Yeah. Right? Like if she someone went voluntarily her. without a struggle, it must be someone she knows. If yeah. there was a struggle, she didn't know that person. Yeah. Yeah. It could have been a stranger like, that like got her in a car, but you know, no one saw anything. So that's also, yeah, we don't know. So on March 16th, almost a month after Georgia had disappeared. Uh, and again, the accounts of this were a bit different as to like who discovered this. One says it was a local farmer who was checking the, the status of the thawing soil on his property. Okay. Another says it was a conservation officer who had stopped to like take a piss on the side of the road. Oh. But he wrote the, in the book, it was saying that he wrote the report differently though. Like he didn't say like, oh, I stopped to take a piss. Yeah. I, he was like, I was checking something or whatever. my dick for piss. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but one of those people discovered the body of George Jackson. Oh no. On this, like on a farmer's land. So that's why one of the books said it was a local farmer. One of them said it was a conservation officer. Yeah. But it was um, on local farm farmland. She was semi-clothed in her tarnished waitress uniform. Her body was found in a secluded bush um, in a, sorry, in a secluded lot, like behind a bush off of Springfield Road. Okay. Just a few dozen meters from where her winter coat had been found. Oh. Uh. So it 
it's hard to say for sure, but considering the location was so close to where her coat was found and there were multiple search parties by citizens and police. Yeah. Some people speculated they wondered whether her body may have been moved there like recently. Yeah. Like after the news had broke about her jacket. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they also like they also just could have missed it. Yeah. It's it's hard to say for sure. There yeah. was speculation about that. So I was just going to put that out there. But we don't we don't know for sure how yeah. thorough these search parties were because like i said most of them in the beginning were citizen search parties so like they're not professionals they're yeah. not police like and they're, they're not doing like, their best yeah so it could it could have been missed but people were wondering about that so uh when when her body was found a call was made to london and dennis alsop was one of the first people to be on the crime scene okay he was mostly working in bank robberies in 1966 that was kind of more of his niche cool. but as we'll discover murderers and serial killers become, become more thing. yeah um but he was called because he had more forensic experience than most of the officers in the opp and just more experience altogether clearly yeah yeah <laughs> just also just like a better yeah he's just, he's just better <laughs> just the best yeah. um if we could just multiply him just clone him yeah, like that would do be it. the entire place <laughs> um there were quotes in the forest city killer from george's parents that i just wanted to include because um George's father had said after they'd found, discovered her body, like press went there, of course, and like talked to them and everything. Yeah. And he had said um, all these rumors about her being fed up with home and taking off will we'll stop now. They have hurt as much as almost anything else. <sighs> and that just kind of like broke my heart. Yeah. You know? Because it's like, I can't imagine one being so worried that your daughter is missing and then two having to deal with all these rumors that people are like, oh, you know, that placing she, blame. she just got fed up with her parents and left. And it's like that you don't know. You don't know and their that's story. That's so hurtful. And, yeah. And uh, Virginia Jackson, her mother, was quoted saying, the attitude of small town police must be changed. They just can't sit back and tell parents she's 20 years old and has probably just taken off. Yeah, I don't blame her for making that statement because it's yeah. just, yeah. And they were still like so respectful they were like we don't want anyone to like lose their job or anything but yeah. we just don't think this was handled properly well, no it was and i would be like oh, fire them all yeah. i would be like get them all out of here i want Screw new ones you you all suck like <laughs> get out of here <laughs> so you know i was i just think it goes to show just how kind and like understanding They're good these people. people were trying to be but yeah. like you just lost your daughter yeah they don't need to yeah that's yeah so um apparently her body was found in the middle of an area on the outskirts of Elmer known as Boxtown. So Michael Arntfield goes into this in detail in his book. Um, he says it was known to be a bit of a rough area, not an area where Georgia or anyone she associated with would have ever like been gone to or hang gone out. to yeah. hang out or anything like that. It was filled with like overgrown land and kind of neglected farms. And it was kind of known to be a hangout spot for some some shady people seedy characters yeah yeah seedy <laughs> characters and also the road where she was found is was known as like a local lover's lane okay type thing so again like georgia would never have been seen there no just there's just no way no um so the dump site michael arntfield kind of feels like it might have been an indication more of who the killer was and that okay. he might have been familiar with the area it's a possibility he could have been engaging in like voyeur voyeuristic activities, like watching, yeah, watching people engage in sexual that's activities. Yeah. We know that that's a precursor for a lot of criminal activity. Yeah, he speculates that the killer maybe took Georgia there because like this location meant something to him. Like he had had fantasies there and wanted and to wanted to bring her enact there. that fantasy. Yeah. Um, 
it could indicate that they knew the area well. And he also pointed out that they could have assumed, and they assumed correctly, that if he left her body there, they would focus on the, as you said, seedy individuals in that area and draw attention away from him. Yes. And he was right. The police began immediately looking into all the people in the Boxtown area. Yeah. Um, Georgia was found partially clothed, but her jewelry and purse were never recovered. So police were like doing stop and frisks and like shakedowns and like interviewing everyone, yeah. even like anyone in the community that didn't live in Boxtown. Like everyone was interviewed. Every man in yeah. town was asked for an alibi on February 18th. And they were looking they were hoping to discover someone that had like her jewelry or her purse or something, something that they could some find, like, right? That they yeah. could pin on someone. Nothing turned up. Ugh. The autopsy showed that Georgia had been brutally sexually assaulted. No. And then suffered uh, blunt force trauma to the head, but she actually died of slow asphyxiation. No. So the medical examiner suggested that she was likely knocked out by a blow or two to the head and then smothered to death because she didn't have any ligature ligature marks marks on her neck. So he was like, it couldn't have been strangulation. I'm um, theorizing it was some sort of smothering. Okay. I don't like that. I know. It feels so grotesque and and horrifying. There was also post-mortem vaginal bruising. Um, and she had a number of strange post-mortem injuries. Mm. So her left ear had been completely removed. Oh, weird. Like clean off, like surgical precision. Why? Not, not entirely sure. Okay. Just yet. But, uh, also her left arm, this is, this is unsettling. I don't like, this is weird. Her left arm had a strip of flesh. (sighs) spanning from like her armpit all the way down to her wrist that was removed Ew, all the no. way down to the bone oh my god uh, why is, uh, keep that face keep that face because you're going to continue okay. there was there were teeth marks on no. either side of the wound okay yeah this is this is someone who's done this before this is we this is beyond like yeah this is this is very strange yeah this is not someone's first rodeo. This is someone who's done this before. The medical examiner obviously likely hadn't seen anything like this before. Yeah. I feel like and we haven't even talked about anything like that before. Like that's. No, yeah. No. And remember what time period we're in. This is 1966. We don't know anything about serial killers. We don't know anything about sexual sadists, psychopaths, anything like that. So like he looked at it and he was like, I don't know what else it could be other than like animals. Which now, like, us analyzing would be like, of course not. That doesn't make any sense. Michael Arnfield says in his book, he's like, if an animal discovered this body with her head wound, her genitals exposed, her bloodied face, they would not be going for her arm or her ear. Yeah, no. An ear is not a source of food. No. And her arm, why just her left arm? Like, he's like, it doesn't make sense. It would be, like, torn to shreds if it were animals. Like, But I think the medical examiner, like, had no idea what to do with this. Like, I think he just didn't know. I guess, yeah. And and that's what they declared it. So we can, like I said, we can look back and analyze it in certain ways. But that's that's what they declared at the time. We, he, Michael Arnfield did point out that obviously now we know that, like, serial killers take souvenirs and trophies yeah. and things like that so someone like ed gein that wouldn't have been out of character for him no. to slice off an ear or take, take that like way. a section of skin yeah so 
so that's why yeah. I'm like, well, I know we understand more what this means. At the time, they had no idea what they were dealing with. No. Um, as mentioned previously, Dennis Alsop was involved. So the file had made its way onto his desk. He was called to the crime scene. Um, and Vanessa Brown and Michael Arnfield very frequently describe Alsop as like the true old fashioned detective. Yeah. Like the okay. epitome of what you think a detective is. He yeah. is cool. He had a talent for seeing details of a case and being able to find patterns contributing yeah. to a larger picture, which like is like a puzzle is, is yeah. what a detective should be good at. Right. Yeah. And it's probably what made him the right kind of detective to be investigating serial murders. And that's probably yeah. why he slid into that area later on. Um, he's clearly skilled at it. Like because he had this intuition of like before people even knew what a serial killer was that someone could even kill multiple people. Yeah. That concept wasn't even common knowledge yet, but he knew yeah. somehow he had the that foresight that was... to be like, this is happening. Yeah. Like... To be able to connect cases and be like, okay, maybe this could be the same person. Yeah. You know, where other people just weren't doing that no. at the time. So when looking into Georgia Jackson's case with the mutilation of the body, the, the biting or eating of her flesh, mm -hmm. the severing of her ear as a possible trophy souvenir yeah. or trophy um keeping her jewelry maybe laying out clues for the police like leaving her scarf and scattering her yeah. coat and like in different places maybe we don't know for sure maybe calling her mother and taunting her yeah he was certain that whoever did this would do it again oh yeah he was certain 100 percent. yeah and like this we is what I mean is that, that. most like, police is... officers would be looking at it and be like, well, this is horrific. But no one would be jumping to that conclusion. Yeah. So this is what I mean is that he was like so ahead of his time. Oh, yeah. And he um, probably saw like that window closing of like, if we don't catch this soon, like we're going to have another case on our more. hands really soon. Yes. In the um, in Michael Arntfield's book, Murder City, he has charts at the back of his book about like the types of killers and everything that um, certain cases were... Uh, labeled as so mm -hmm. like now with our research now not back then but he would organize he would sorry he would label this as like an organized act focused hedonist lust killer basically okay. like that they're driven by compulse like compulsions and overwhelming attack paraphilias mm -hmm. okay um as well as intrusive violent fantasies that can only be satisfied through murder okay so that's kind of what he speculated about yeah. from, you know, looking at the crime scene and the autopsy and all, how everything was laid out. This is the same category killer as Sander Fulip, which yep. we talked about, who killed Victoria Mayo mm -hmm. and was suspected of killing Patricia Bovine. And same category as Christian McGee, right. Matt Slasher, yes. who killed Judith Barksy, Patricia Jenner, and Susan Schultz. So just so we're understanding, like, what, what type of style of, yeah killer this is um the jackson family obviously was very upset at how the case had been handled and um you know even after receiving the phone call the police still didn't really do anything or get going on things and the com the community like outside of the jo jehovah's witness community mm -hmm. the elmer community was behind them on that yeah they were like this was fucked up so bad yeah um some, it's an embarrassment it's for embarrassing the entire town. it is like, some it's... called for the police chief to resign good um, yeah you know his uh i can't remember like his boss or whoever involved in the police backed him up and was like no he did the right thing and whatever all stuff mm, but anyways no, people but okay. were like upset the opp created a new one thousand dollar reward for information about george's killer because the previous 500 had gone to the person who had found her body whether that was the farmer or the conservation officer yeah not sure but it went to that person so they set up a new reward 
to find her killer. Yeah. Um, in December 1966, so now we're, you know, her body had been found in March. So in December 1966, the Jackson family actually ended up moving to Stratford. Okay. Uh, doesn't really say why, but I don't know. I wonder if maybe they just couldn't deal with it anymore. To like too many memories, too many yeah. Like, scars. Yeah. And Stratford, for anyone who doesn't know, isn't super far away. It would be maybe like an hour, 40, maybe 40 minutes north of Elmer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No more than an hour. No. So um, over the years that that passed since George's assault and murder, Dennis Elsop, though always revisiting George's case because it sat on his desk with many other cases, uh, he didn't have the time he wished he could have to dedicate to solving her murder. Yeah. And you, yeah, we'll understand why in some of the coming episodes, because between the mid sixties and the mid seventies, there was a, there was a lot, there was a lot of shit going on in London in the surrounding area. We say it every time London's fucked. It's fucked. And Dennis was involved (laughs) in most, if not all of it, even cases that weren't assigned to him, he would investigate off the books because he was just that kind of person. And he was always trying to find connections. Yeah. So he had a lot going on, but he still, even through all of that, he still, did a lot for the Jackson case. He continued to conduct interviews and follow up on leads. He did a lot of forensic examination of cars at auto lots in the area to try and track down the car that George's killer drove. Right. He tracked down all of the employees of the Elmer Dairy Bar suppliers and uncovered records of all of their employees and looked into every single one of them to see if any, anyone could have been possible suspects. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. So he was leaving no stone unturned. Like he was, dedicated probably one of the only people that was putting in that much effort into this case especially after a period of time when you have no leads and yeah it unfortunately goes cold yeah there was a man that some members of the jehovah's witness community and elmer were keeping a close eye on okay he was a member of of the jehovah's witness he worked for the cnr the national railway he was a section man which means um he looked for damaged or deficient spots on railway lines to be replaced so that means his job took him all over, exposed him to many, many areas in southwestern Ontario, um, especially areas near like railroad tracks and stations. Okay. At that time were low income, high crime, kind of like back roads, lovers lanes, like seedy characters of, again. Yeah. Sketchy <laughs> areas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, all the dark corners of the world yeah. kind of thing. In March of 1970, so we're now... Like a whole year, a year later. Or, sorry, we're four years on. Four, oh, my God. Four years That's on. That's the math she, I can do. 1966. Um, he was known to be a source for stolen goods and had been the subject of an internal investigation with the CNR in which they were inquiring into him. There were rumors that he was stealing equipment and selling it. You shithead. The, the investigation concluded that he was not intelligent enough to pull this scheme off. Imagine. It's not a good, yeah. that's not a good result. This, Either way, you're screwed at that point. Like, <laughs> like you either did it and you're fired or you're too stupid to do yeah. so we'll fire someone else. Oh my um, God. And that's basically what happened. They were like, you're too dumb to pull this off. They fired someone else. They thought they pinned someone else for it. Yeah. But a lot of people still think it, like still believe that he had throughout his career with the cnr stolen and sold and sold off yeah. like, parts and goods and stuff after long shifts at the cnr this man would often go into the dairy bar for ice cream and he would often flirt with the young women who worked there one of them being georgia jackson and the other being elaine crooker um the daughter of Bert crooker who was okay. the overseer at the kingdom hall right yes 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 so um 
through many visits, this man would come into the dairy bar um, and he ended up actually marrying Elaine. So the daughter, okay. the daughter of the overseer of the of the kingdom hall um georgia along with other members of the jehovah's witness w- attended the wedding um and being the overseer's daughter elaine which was elaine yeah you would you'd think that this man that married her would want to you know like ha- have a role in the church or like yeah. at least make an attempt to be devout or like yeah. committed to it but as time went on it was almost the opposite like he just couldn't care less about it like oh. lost interest like wouldn't want to go to meetings yeah. other than the ones that like his wife would force him to go to well like you need to be supportive of your spouse like otherwise it just and he's also like, he's a jehovah's witness himself yeah so she's sort of like well i may like i married you because you were in yeah. the same religion as me yeah and i thought like, this would be a common thing that's the thing right like yeah. yeah so things went the other way um him and elaine had eventually had five children it's a lot of kids that's a lot of kids um and it was we'll find out later reportedly due to his overactive sex drive oh ew don't like that yeah we'll discuss (laughs) that more later unfortunately he moved his family around a lot so they had started in elmer they moved to avon um kitchener other places he just moved them around a lot annoying yes yeah. that's, that's too many children super annoying to be moving around so frequently i oh, can't even yeah. move by myself yeah that's i, too, I that's know too much like, like just dragging them around in a wagon behind yeah, you like that's just, no that life's a lot of too hectic i just got tired like <laughs> in 1966 he had been arrested for public mischief and that's then, my favorite thing to do. I know. Public Remember? mischief. Public mischief. I know. That's my thing. It's like, what a vague, I really, I really want to get arrested charge. for it. <laughs> I don't know what I need to do, though, to get that charge. Anyone but, listening like, that knows a cop? Just throw it on my record <laughs> so I can say I have it. <laughs> like, it would be so cool. Um, or not. He was, I don't know. He was arrested again in 1968 for two accounts of breaking and entering. No, that's not cool. Not good. You don't want to be arrested for that, Becky. No, no. I want public <laughs> mischief, like me just being like public a joker mischief. out in public. <laughs> In the spring of 1970, he was arrested again in Kitchener for publicly exposing himself. Ew, that's not public mischief. That's just no, yucky. That's gross. And then again for a charge relating to anal sex. It Ugh. it basically like I think it was Vanessa Brown who said this that usually a charge like that at that time would be for being caught having sex with a man yeah. because homosexuality had just been decriminalized the year before. Okay. So there were still police officers like out there that were charge, just like going yeah. out and arresting people for doing that. Or like, yeah. you know, people not having a place to do it. Sometimes it would be like in, in public. hidden public places and things yeah. like that. Right. So that's kind of what people speculate that charge is. Not really sure. Obviously, or he was just like a creeper and was out like sodomizing people against I their mean, will, which like. I hope not. Yeah. We, we, we now know that exhibitionism can be a, a preparatory paraphilia. That yeah. can be a, like a warning sign. But no one knew that back in 1970. No. They just thought he was a fucking weirdo. Yeah. A judge ordered a psych evaluation on him and they declared him, this is so oh, no. weird to me, quote, a pretty standard exhibitionist. Oh, because that's oh, yeah, standard. Yeah, yeah. Just your regular run of the mill. That's, not... that's our neighborhood exhibitionist. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh, that's just Bob. He just, it's always hanging out. He's just flashing. <laughs> it's just always He's out. He's having a flashing day. Ew. Ew. 
gross um they uh, yeah he they said he was pretty standard um whatever that means and <laughs> whatever that means <laughs> and lacking disgusting. quote any particular disturbance so they found no disturbances um, um it's the, pretty disturbing to see someone's dick and balls in public when you're not wanting to see somebody's dick and balls consent. like <laughs> the judge basically attributed his behavior to attention seeking and out of frustration from not getting enough sex from his wife he has five children i'm th- pretty sure he's getting it on the regs yeah like you like, can't just turn around and blame the wife for that yeah where it's like you need to have sex with him or else he's gonna keep flashing people yeah that doesn't make any sense no those dots don't connect no if somebody was like you know what the only way to stop drew from hanging dong out in public is this i'd be like that's a him problem imagine if that's that's what what happened every time a dude was like sexually frustrated it's like i'm not getting enough sex this week and they just like uncontrollably have to go out and just like flash everybody (laughs) and you're like oh man oh that guy's having a dry spell like as hilarious as it is it's also sad because like that is kind of how it is there's so many like rapists running around where it's just like and they'll chalk it up to like oh i have a hard time getting girls and it's like i don't fucking care so do a lot of people you (laughs) know what so do a lot of people and they don't go around killing people and raping people or just like flashing their wieners all over the place stop it ew penises are ugly like stop <laughs> don't no in the in, when don't you, ever assume we want to see it <laughs> no unless i explicitly ask <laughs> to see it assume that i think you're disgusting yeah. like god damn it um yeah so, so that's my tangent for the day <laughs> the psychologist basically assessed him as immature oh which yep. is like i mean i Spot guess on. i can't disagree with that I but he yeah he just he wasn't really being watched by police or anyone too closely um, other than his father-in-law Bert Crooker and yeah. Arthur Prowley who was another overseer at the Kingdom Hall get him they had been watching him very closely since his first arrest and um by January 1972 so we're now 6 years on from George's murder for some unknown reason there were like new rumors circling around George's murder that there was someone within the Jehovah's Witness community someone different than the man that I'm talking about that might that might have been involved yeah but the overseers were watching this particular man. Um, the the subject of the other rumors, the name is unknown. Vanessa Brown said like she couldn't she couldn't track down the name of like who other people were speculating about. Right. Um, but there were also rumors within these rumors that at the church, Bert Crooker was covering up for someone. <gasps> Maybe his son in law. Yeah. Right? So I think people were kind of starting to make some connections yeah so the basically like the jehovah's witness church had asked their sort of like i don't know how what you would describe it like their headquarters like their head i don't know like head office almost like i'm like (laughs) i know i want to say head office because i've worked in so much retail but um (laughs) like their head to basically say like give them permission to investigate this murder and like get it solved because this was a jehovah's witness member so it was very close Close to their community and they just and there was rumors swirling and they were like we just want to get this solved so they sent down a man named charles ross Um, who was uh, apparently a very well-known Jehovah's Witness at the time, and he helped Arthur Prowley start an investigation. Okay, cool. On January 21st, 1972, Arthur Prowley and Charles Ross drove to Kitchener to visit the man in question. Oh, that must have been such a drive. Like, imagine just being like, we're going to go fucking we're question gonna, his we're ass. Gonna go, we're going to uh, go interrogate we're him. We're going to go. We're going to knock on his door. Like, I feel like I would be like, let's fucking do this. I'd be like, <laughs> listening to all the tiger like, the whole yeah. way. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, So the man I've been speaking about, his name is David Bodimer. Okay. They 
got to David's house, the, where he lived with Elaine and their children. They sat him down in a room. They told him that whoever killed Georgia would be punished by the creator and that the killer would not be saved when the world ended in 1975. Oh, so shit. You're there were, doomed, man. There were some Jehovah's Witness who believed um, there were some writings that indicated to them end of that times. the the yeah the world would end in 1975 all who believed in the creator would be saved so they kind of used this as yeah. like a way to scare him in, in there, where they were like if he if he did it and we tell him like well when the creator comes like even if you lie to us he'll know yeah and he's not gonna save you good so oh, i love that it's getting used against him like <laughs> I, I love I it i'm like I'm, it's I'm not this. coercion if it's true so <laughs> i mean they truly do believe that like the creator yes decides. that's what i mean and like, you know what maybe maybe that is the case maybe that's why like they all made it through except i don't know fucking some people that suck yeah so, exactly so i mean who, who are we to say it didn't happen exactly <laughs> They, they told him the only way the killer could be saved is if he confessed and begged for forgiveness. Within an hour, David had broken down and he said... It's not very long. It's not very long. No. Um, I always love when that happens where they're like, oh, you broke in like minutes. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, because you're <laughs> He weak. literally soiled himself. Like, <laughs> um, He said, I'll tell you everything. Just let me talk to Elaine first. Okay. So two days later, Bert Crooker received a phone call from his daughter, Elaine, a phone call he had somewhat been expecting. Okay. On January 24th, Bert, Arthur Prowley, and Charles Ross drove down to Kitchener to get David's full confession. Oh, the confession, my blood's pumping. I know. The confession, we'll, we'll hear all of it, but it detailed everything from the kidnapping, the sexual assault, and the murder. You piece of shit. He was immediately excommunicated by the overseers. Good. And they called the OPP to come and arrest him. Yeah. Dennis Alsop, someone got the call. They went and told Dennis and he was in Kitchener within hours. He hopped in the car and he Fuck went yeah, there. yeah, Dennis. He arrested 26-year-old David Bodemer, brought him to the OPP headquarters, and the next day he interviewed him and had him retell his confession to Dennis. Mm. So in David's confession, he said that on the night he took Georgia, he was parked outside of the dairy bar or down the street it's unclear in his 1957 ford meteor okay so i'm just mentioning that it won't necessarily come into play in this episode again but there are car makes and models that okay. might come into play in future episodes okay so we don't have to remember that but uh, that's the only reason you'll I'm, remind I'm me mentioning it okay everyone um, else will remember I'll 57 forget. ford meteor um <laughs> <laughs> there's gonna be a listener that's like taking notes right now so. <laughs> and me i'm like i've already forgotten <laughs> so um david as mentioned before had been to the dairy bar many times he knew G georgia well um and you know from the dairy bar and also they were both part of the jehovah's witness community mm -hmm. georgia had known david's wife elaine since the seventh grade yeah i was gonna say like they're friends a small community like i yeah. said georgia was at their wedding everyone like, knows each yeah. other David had been obviously watching Georgia for some time. Pervert. He would constantly like chatter up and like flirt with her at the ice cream counter. And um, he would like come in with his wife all the time and stuff. And they'd chat with her. Michael Arntfield speculates that David definitely fantasized about Georgia. And those fantasies probably went to some pretty dark places. Like we said, if we're talking about a hedonist lust killer, yeah. there are some pretty dark fantasies happening. Yeah. That need to be satisfied. So, um, he often was around, like, when Georgia was closing and stuff. Like, he, he would know what time the dairy bar closes at. Yeah. It closed at like probably his the wife same time every night. She worked there, too. 
Um, and so when he saw that she was closing that night, he was like, it's cold, it's dark, you know, I'll offer her a ride home. And, um, and you know, he stated that the attack wasn't planned in his confession. He said, I was just offering her a ride home. That was where it started out. Okay. I don't know. Like, we, we can't know for sure. Yeah. I think that Michael Arnfield definitely speculates that it was a bit more planned than that. But I don't think it was like... There would have been no need for him to stalk her. Like, they lived in a, yeah. like a pretty small community. I mean, he was in Kitchener at the time, but he was, like, working at the railway. He was always he was kind of around. But, you know, as to whether we know if he was, like, February 18th, that's it. That's I the strike. day. I don't yeah. know for sure. He might have just been in the area, seen her, and been like, Tonight's tonight. Okay, I'm going to do it now. Yeah. But he claims, no. Like, when I went to offer her a ride, I wasn't planning to do this. So okay. we'll never really know for sure. But... And I also, too, I was thinking about this on my drive over here. I, I'm wondering if, because, like, a lot of killers will, like, confess to the killing, but then they'll be like, oh, I didn't intend for it to happen, or that was yeah. my intention. And I wonder if they, like, explicitly say that to, like, avoid additional charges. Because usually if you, like, admit, like, I planned it, they, I can't remember what the charge is called now, but it's um, like, yeah, you know what I'm we talking will, about? We, we'll actually come to that a bit in this okay. case. Yes. Okay. To, to be able to determine whether there was premeditation that's or not. The pre yeah. That's it. Yes. Yes. And that does make a huge difference in the charges, which yes. we'll get to. So he stated the attack was not planned. He spotted her out of the blue outside of Spicer's Bakery, which isn't consistent with where other witness accounts had seen her at the time. Okay. Um, but like I said, it wasn't necessarily out of character for him to be around. So yeah. he, you know, when when he pulled up and offered her a ride, it, it, it wouldn't have seemed that weird to her. What, right. what made her hesitant was that, like I said, she was very chaste and committed to her religion. Um, she wasn't really supposed to be with men in the absence of somebody else. Yeah. Especially she felt like it was weird because he was a married man. Yeah. Her, his wife wasn't in the car. His kids weren't in the car. So she was like, I don't think I should be seen alone with a married man. Yeah. Especially like a friend of mine. Like yeah. that, that's it's just weird. Yeah. So he, she was hesitant. He convinced her um, whether, you know, it was like it's cold outside. There was something mentioned in one of the books about, you know, like, don't forget about all those murders happening just not too far away in London. You know, uh, like you can never be too careful. So I feel like if someone ever warns me about, you know, the murders happening and be like, like you it's did you. it. Yeah. You did it. <laughs> Red flag, guys. <laughs> um, so after some convincing, I guess she got in the car. He drove her to her to her house. He said, I did get her to her house. And then we stopped in front of her house and I was asking about her um her sister and her sister's husband. So this is Dennis and Linda Sullivan. He was saying, Oh, where do they live now? And she was like, Oh, well, they just live only a few blocks away. Like I could show you. So he said they drove to her sister's house. And then she was like, Yeah, it's that house right there. And then they turned he turned around to take her home. But then he stopped on a side street in front of an electrical company and she asked him why he had stopped and it probably dawned on her pretty quickly that something was wrong yeah. when he reached over and put his arm around her Ugh, and like pulled her towards Stop. him Yuck. across the car and like i said she was hesitant about even getting in the car yeah so at this point she was like no 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 like she she and was like this very, is immediately wrong. very uncomfortable yeah so she started pushing him away and thrashing around in the car trying to open the door yeah and he got angry and he grabbed a soda bottle in the back of his uh car and he bashed her over the head with it uh, twice i don't like this guy yeah 
and he knocked her out so this is the 60s right like it would have been glass yeah um none of that plastic shit that we no. use now no cans uh, it would have really hurt so she passed out um and as she was passing out she said my parents are waiting for me oh no it was just so because it's true they were waiting they were freaking out and it's just and like she, knew. she was like if i'm not home in like five minutes like they're yeah gonna they're gonna out. find you like um and so he drove off into a nearby township he pulled onto an unplowed rural field and georgia started to regain consciousness and as she regained consciousness she started to scream again and so he had tried to he said i tried to cover her nose and her mouth hoping she would just pass out but i ended up and this was during the sexual assault okay so he basically tried to get her to pass out during the sexual assault and he's claiming he accidentally killed her and realized that she was dead yeah like while he was assaulting assaulting her her, which is Mm. just i see that's so upsetting in itself i just like just to imagine her last moments like that but it yeah it doesn't matter i mean this guy is a complete psychopath scumbag you know what like that's his that's the way he worded it in his confession so like you said he's trying to he's trying to um prove that there was no premeditation and you know what here uh, sure maybe that wasn't the moment you had intended to kill her but you know fully well that this is such a small community that you can't let that girl go alive and that's what i'm thinking so I'm like there's no way sh- sure maybe you were like oh i'm just gonna take her in my car yeah. and assault her and then drop her back off at home so yeah maybe sure you're not lying when you say oh i didn't intend to kill her in that moment but you're gonna have to do but something you were with going her. to have to do it after at least yes. so yeah. you sure Maybe that moment wasn't the moment that you had planned, but you knew fully well that she wasn't going alive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's indisputable. Like, and so um, once he realized that she was dead, he started his car again. He drove down Highway 3, took a ride on Springfield Road and where her body was found. He said he half carried, half dragged her into the bush on the side of the road behind some shrubs. He went back to his car and as he drove away, he realized her coat was still in his car okay. with the blood on it. So on his way back to Elmer, he stopped and threw her coat behind a tree. He said apparently he didn't remember anything about the scarf. But Maybe. her scarf ended up somewhere. So he must have tossed that at some yeah. point as well. Um, he went back to Elmer and he went to work with his father-in-law because he had a shift schedule that night cleaning at the Bank of Montreal. Okay. So they would clean in the evening sometimes together. He arrived around 7.30. Okay. David Sullivan, Georgia's brother-in-law, was wandering wandering the streets at this point looking for Georgia because most of the family was. He knocked on the door and asked David if he had seen her, and David said no. Later, um, David Sullivan returned and told David Bodemer and Bert Crooker that Georgia was missing. So Bert was like, okay, get your things. Like, we're going in and looking for her. After searching for a while, Bert had suggested that David Bodemer goes home because he was like, you're not really dressed for the weather. He didn't have his coat on because on his way back to Elmer, he realized there was blood all on the sleeve. So before he got to the bank of Montreal, he took it off and left it in his car and was like, well, I can't put that coat back on for the rest of the night. So Bert Kruger was like, I don't know where your coat is, but like it's getting really cold. So you should probably just go home. And David was like, yeah, I'll just I'll go home. 
He participated in the many searches, though, that went on for Georgia in the following days, as we know. They do that. They do that. Yes. They want to insert themselves into the investigation. Or they at least want to know what's going on. Yeah, that or even maybe derail it to different directions. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, maybe let's search over this way in this area. There was some indications of of him maybe doing that. Nothing like major. But yes, at least being there to be aware of where they were searching. It was revealed in the confession that David had secretly been renting a small work shed at the back of a farm near the town of Avon. So they had lived there at one point. He had rented the shed to keep his cars in. But then when they had moved, he had continued to rent the shed. Okay. And um, he, he, after killing Georgia and the initial search for her um, on the evening of February 18th took place, he drove to the work shed and hid the souvenirs he had taken like i don't think he worded it that way but he had um brought his bloody coat yeah and while he was driving back from elmer he had also realized that her glove her winter glove was under the seat Mm -hmm. so he had driven to the shed after he was sent home from the search and put shoved his coat his bloody coat and her winter glove into like I don't know. It sounds like in between the walls of the shed, there was like some sort of framing maybe that he had shoved it into. Like almost like where the insulation is. Maybe. Yeah. He had said basically between the walls. Um, By the time of this confession, though, because this was six years on, the farm owners had actually demolished the shed. Oh, fuck. To allow for new construction on their land. So he had rented it almost like all the way up until that point. But Mm. they had demolished it like I think within that year. Oh, my God. That sucks. Yeah. So... Did he ever explain the the ear and the skin on the arm? No. We're we're kind of going to I think we'll touch on that later, but to be honest, the official report still kind of chalked it up to animal scavenging. Ugh, okay. Because David never confessed to any of that. Okay. He didn't include that in his confession. He's like, I killed her and then I just dumped the body. Ugh, okay. So they were like, okay, well, I guess that proves what, our theory. It must yeah. have just been animals. Yeah. And he wouldn't really confess to something like that unless no, asked. Because he's like, not confessing to everything. No. So um, this, like I said, the shed had been demolished in March, a couple of months after David's confession. This this is what I mean about Detective Dennis Alsop. Um <laughs> He was like, okay, so the shed's been demolished, but it was demolished and then it was brought to a dump site in Springfield. Okay, let's go check there. He went there. (laughs) He brought a shovel and he dug up the remains of the shed through, like, it was completely demolished. It was thrown into, like, it sounds like it was almost buried under, like, soil and debris scraps cement wood gravel like just everything like he brought a shovel he dug it up i don't even know how you would be able to decipher it from all the other remnants of things in there but somehow that's he did it's crazy to me like it's wow like just this is what i mean about a true detective if something ever happens to me like call him like oh gosh i like i said i wish he could just i wish we could replicate him um he ended up finding the glove no no he found the fucking glove yeah that's so small in comparison to like lifting a tiny cars woman's shit. little winter glove like Fuck. you i can i could not believe what i read i had goosebumps oh my god that's insane yeah that's mind-blowing okay yeah okay 
this is because he was badass. he was like well this guy confessed yes but like if we can still get some physical evidence yeah then that's good too so he was he just went and spent the whole day digging in the ground and <sighs> found a glove we need to make a show off of him I and know. like the cases he's like single-handedly solved it's, we'll do it we'll write it yeah like <laughs> honestly i mean these you should it, like yeah when you i know you've read forest city killer or at least part of it but like murder yeah. city as well like i feel like these books are in a way like they're like love letters to him like they're like <laughs> just like so they praise him so much and well, they're like, like well these books aren't possible without him like, yeah it's just everything that he did and like i said there's going to be lots more that we talk about in future episodes oh, but yes. that's like one of those shining moments where i'm like oh you're a fucking rock star man <laughs> So whatever else we we don't know, we'll never know if there was anything else in that shed. Yeah. That belonged to Georgia or that belonged to other people. But he found we don't the glove. we don't know. He found the glove and that was their focus at the time. David um had also Oh, he also could have they were saying he also could have removed things from the shed like before it was demolished cuz right. he knew it was being yeah. I don't know. Sure. Um Oh, uh, yes, because when they spoke to David's wife, Elaine, she said that in the weeks leading up to the confession and these rumors were swirling that there was like a suspect that people in the Jehovah's Witness community, David had started selling off his possessions (gasps) and talking about suicide. Okay. So that's why they were saying like maybe, maybe he went and moved things around or maybe he went and disposed of things. He's selling off his possessions like she realized afterwards after he told her what happened that oh like this makes sense like he was leading up to either a confession or maybe a suicide or i don't know yeah but he knew something was going down um you'd have to you'd have to know yeah like, yeah yeah dennis had also um after speaking to the owners had discovered that for the whole time that david was renting the shed it had running electricity okay so it could have supported some type of refrigeration okay it's just something that they had noted interesting Mm -hmm. yeah so dennis also tracked down david's blue two-tone 1957 ford meteor at an auto wrecking yard um just west of kitchener okay he found five or six spots of blood under the armrest of the passenger seat uh so this this all of this lined up with david's confession like yeah. he was like you confess but i'm gonna like i need it. to f- yeah i need to confirm it with physical evidence to really like solidify the yeah, case to hammer the nail in yeah because as we know confessions sometimes can be thrown out yeah um so d- this yeah he found blood which isn't surprising because in david's confession he said that the next morning when he realized that there was blood on the seats he tried to wipe it away with a rag and some snow no, but that's not good enough. Like, that's so dumb to me where it's just like, oh, I'm just going to grab like a snowball and oh. just rub it on my seat and then just like wipe it away <laughs> I'm with just a gonna rag. Rub it in a circle and make it worse. Like, you dab, not rub. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, I don't know. What I'm just like idiot. picturing some idiot on the side of the road. And you're like, why are you throwing Scooping snow into your snow. car? <laughs> Get it out of your car, not in your car. Damn, us crazy Canadians, I tell you. <laughs> love our snow. <laughs> Um, oh, clean God. with it apparently it, no you can't it's just water it's like dirty water you know what actually let's not even tell that because if there's like a killer listening that's like i'm gonna use snow yeah, oh, you yeah. do it use yeah, snow no just, yeah, yeah they'll never know we'll find a few drops of blood <laughs> so dennis through all of this um not surprising was trying to see if he could make any connections to some of the london murders that he was investigating 
Um, and he was seriously concerned, rightfully so, about what the fuck David had been doing in the last five years. Yeah. Because this was six years on from George's murder. Yeah. And if he, and like we said, in the beginning of the investigation was like, whoever did this is doing it again. Yes. He was looking at David like, where's the others? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and he worked for the rail the railway, right? So he was very mobile. He was always all over the place, yeah. right? Moving around kind of like a transient. Like he yeah. had a home, but like you have a transient job, right? You're yeah. moving around constantly. Almost like a trucker where you're just like, you're everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Trucker. That will come into play later. <laughs> ah, shit. <laughs> he... Don't worry. We love truckers, but some yeah, of them yeah. suck. Oh, yeah. No, for some sure. Some of them suck. <laughs> it's just a, it's not, it's just a scary profession for a serial killer to have. It is. It really is. There are also possible, um, though speculative, connections to some of the upcoming London murders, like I said. So mm-hmm. we'll get to that later. We won't be discussing that in this episode, but this is the introduction basically to David Bodimer um, in, in case we need to pull on any theories later. But Dennis had noted that David had driven three other cars after trading his 57 Meteor. So he, this is Vanessa Brown who kind of like discussed these vehicles so he had driven a 1965 and a 1967 ford Fairlane, and then i don't know how to say this but a 1966 piaget piaget i'd i'd have to see it and i also know i'll probably mess it up anyways that car (laughs) that's the car of relevance vanessa brown points out (laughs) peugeot um that it's a european car and that it had a thing in it called a couchette which is basically when the front seats fold all the way back down flat and it forms a double bed in the car. Oh, that sounds comfy for like the drive-in, but also bad for murderers. Yeah, that's what <laughs> that's kind of what she pointed out. She was like, although we don't know what he was doing in these years, this is one of the cars that he had. At times he had like multiple cars, it sounds like, but that is just, she was just saying it's not a car that everybody had. No. It's not a car that everyone had. No. And it had this weird, unique feature that if you were a serial murderer and rapist, that would yeah. be of use to you. Ugh. Stop it. I don't like this case. So in 1972, David Bodimer underwent psychiatric tests to determine whether he was fit to stand trial. These tests took place at none other than the Oak Ridge Hospital in Metatanguishing, Ontario. <laughs> Where everybody else Everybody is. goes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think... um. Russell Johnson or Christian McGee would have been there yet. They would have been there in like the mid seventies, but yeah. that's that's the same hospital we're yeah, talking we about. The ones where they were that sent place up and just like Ugh, run some interviews. It's now called uh, the Waypoint Center for mental health or something like that. It's called the Waypoint Center, but okay. yes, that's it used to be called the Oak Ridge. So that's where he went for these psychiatric tests. Okay. It was decided that um, he who was fit to stand trial. And in April of 1972, despite signing two confessions, the one to the overseers and the one to Dennis Alsop, mm-hmm. David Bodimer pled not guilty. What a fucking dingle tit. <laughs> I know. You fucking moron. He pled not guilty to the non-capital murder of Georgia Jackson. So this is what I mean is that non-capital murder would have been non-premeditated. Yeah, like accident oopsie. Ca- capital you murder butthead. would have been premeditated. So... The trial began on June 19th, 1972, um, in the small courthouse in St. Thomas, Ontario. Okay. Because they couldn't have it in... I don't think Elmer had a courthouse, actually. I think that's what they said. Yeah. So the closest was St. Thomas. Yeah. 
it was apparently jam-packed seven days a week with people from all over the area trying to get a, a glimpse at oh, George's yeah. killer. Because this is six years, seven years on now. Like, yeah, and it hit um, like a whole community. Yes. Like, like everyone was really like, tight oh, they found community. her killer. Like, yeah. we need to see this guy. Yeah. So I mean, you and I would have gone had oh, we been absolutely. alive. Oh, like, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, like lined up at the door. Um, <laughs> With our tomatoes ready in hand. Like, <laughs> oh my God, like acid. <laughs> <laughs> just a bucket of acid I, I went with tomatoes and you were like no burn them yeah no <laughs> seriously disfigure him um <laughs> oh shit one of the witnesses how fun is this was the former police chief in elmer harold henderson who had had to leave elmer in disgrace after the inquest had been initiated due to his incompetence in leading the police department in the investigation yeah well so he did leave like he did eventually end up resigning and he went and just got another job he under his little rock they had to track him down for the for the trial because he had just left and like hey can you come to trial we need to embarrass you publicly yeah. for what a bad job you did yeah. <laughs> and he came he came. He was summoned and he came. Wearing like a hat and glasses and like mumbling. People were probably throwing tomatoes at him too. Get him. Uh, the jury was made up of 12 men from the area, which um, I guess was pointed out by Vanessa Brown. I'm pretty sure she was saying that even back then that was weird. Like to have no women I on the jury. I was just going to say, was that normal? Because that doesn't feel normal. No, it just, I guess, happened that way. Um, eh. George's mother and siblings took the stand david's wife elaine took the stand wow um and she spoke about how david had some disturbing sexual preferences Ew. this is what i mean about how it's like oh, i'm gonna get to that later Ew. why do you have to get to that later i don't want to get to that later it's because it <laughs> is it later this profile of is criminal. it later right now it's right now ah oh, fuck we're here okay she said he would only get aroused when she played dead stop it stop right now um, she said that when she would mm. comply, he would become hypersexualized you, you, and could never be satisfied. I'm and, literally going to jump out your window right now. Like, oh, I know. It's, it's gross. And when she didn't do it, when she refused, he would storm out of the house in fits of rage sometimes. And he would sometimes be gone for days at a time. That's so... Okay, first I'd be like, I'm calling the cops. Yes. Like, <laughs> yes. And Ew. Yeah. Ugh. Stop being like this, people. Like, just get your go to therapy. You know, just just get help so you don't have to be this way. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. that's icky. I know. Ugh. I know. I it's feel hard. Really, to, I real yeah. really feel bad for his wife. Like, I know that can't be like good woman. for you. Um, yeah, she said she did admit that. Um, I don't know if she said this on trial, but she admitted it to the police that he did her words have sex with her without permission. Oh, which back then wasn't it wasn't a crime yeah i don't think it was until like 75 that's just not like where you can be charged for like raping your wife yeah but like before that it was like that's your wife so like technically you can't rape her that's that's I what the law said like i'm just, i know like, that's sick. bullshit but yeah. like she did say he would do that too um that's absolutely sickening i like i couldn't even imagine being with the person you're supposed to trust the most and they're just like well i'm gonna have my way like yeah whether you like it or not that's horrifying yeah this, that's what i mean like yeah this, this poor, poor woman's poor like woman. just as much a victim like and it's to just have to so get up in court and, and talk about this talk, like that's the yeah. thing is like you oh. didn't talk about your sex life no in public and they or even with like friends or family yeah. like it was just like especially in that community subject. too yes. like that's like a very, a very wholesome community where they're like no, religious this is community. private 
Yes. So that... Like, even today, that's uncomfortable for people to talk about. Like... Yes. It, even in friend groups, like I know like we'll sit around and like talk about things and stuff, but like even in our friend group, we'll be like, oh, is this okay? Like, can I say this? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but like, yeah, that's not cool. Oh, oh, I don't like it. I know. She said that he had um a lot of pornography, print Ew. and film, and that he... um. Yeah, and like I said, that he would have sex with her without permission, which is just so just disgusting. Like, get a fucking life, man. Um, a psychologist testified during the trial. This is so. This is even more upsetting. I'm sorry. Um, why are you doing this to me? Just named Dr. Evans testified at the trial for the defense, saying that David had an extremely high libido and that if his wife had been able to satisfy this, then the crime might not have happened. Yeah, it's all her fault for sure. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, this is what I mean. It's that like, makes sense. Like medical professionals and legal professionals are just like blaming his wife. What the fuck is actually with his wrong previous with this charges world? in Kitchener and stuff too, where they're like, well, if she just had sex with him more, then she literally just finished saying that he would have sex to her. Yeah. Without her permission. Mm-hmm. Like yeah no like I, that's what i'm saying i'm like, I I, I'm like i can't like, even the movements of my arms right now like i can't <laughs> i can't express my anger no strong like, enough other than maybe like punching a wall um oh my god do you have any like drywall that we can just go like punch through right I now i do i do Fuck, i yeah. can like we have I've like always, we have strips of it from the basement i could hold it up like karate oh kid style you, i've oh. always wanted to just like be like i punched through a wall today yeah <laughs> should we t- just not any of my actual walls please Okay, so don't go look in your closet that I stay in. <laughs> Becky just gets up. I hear some loud bang and crunching sound. She comes back. I'm good. I'm great. I'm so good. I'm That's good. actually so... I hope that guy lost his job. I hope he's jobless right now and is so. miserable and has a really His name was life. Dr. Evans for anybody who just wants to know. Dr. I'm Evans. I'm literally going to find him. This trial took place in 1972. Dr. Evans. Um, I will find him. <laughs> Albert Crooker, Bert Crooker, yeah. that, as everyone called him, he also took the stand. So okay, good. What is somewhat interesting and confusing uh, is that a couple of people that took the stand changed their stories. Burt Crooker is one of them. He originally had said that he had not been cleaning at the BMO uh, the night that Georgia went missing. So okay. the Bank of Montreal. Yeah, yeah, For yeah. anyone who's uh, not Canadian. Not Canadian. Uh, we just call it BMO. BMO. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I knew right away. And then I was just like, oh, yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> um so originally he said that he wasn't scheduled to clean then later later changed his story to match david's confession saying that david that they were cleaning that night and david had arrived around 7 30 or 7 40 okay um another thing that was interesting to note is that um there was a family that was friends with the bodimer family um they were the uh van den Dreisch family wow okay i if you're looking at it i did a pretty good job but I trust you. Vanden, You're Vanden better. Dreisch. You're better at pronouncing stuff so than me. So you probably nailed German it. German or something. Yeah. Or um, Dutch or something. Yes. Yeah. Or Dutch. So they they had claimed that they had invited the Bodemer family over for dinner that night. And that the, like, the night Georgia went missing and that they didn't show up. They like stood them up for their dinner plans. Rude. But maybe you should have just gone to have dinner instead. How about that, you fucking moron? <laughs> um, but the, obviously the jurors like it kind of confused them because they're like, so he had a shift scheduled, and then he but also he had dinner, dinner plans. plans. So the Vanden Dreisch family ended up changing their story too and said that, oh no, the Bodemer stood us up on a different a different night. We just misremembered the night. <laughs> So it's kind of confusing, but it's also like people are changing their story to kind because of match his confession. So it's kind of like helping him get convicted. Yeah. 
which like i get so, but you can't do but that you, because but it still is suspicious right because we're like okay are you lying for him or lying against him yeah or and it's just like we, we need to find the truth here yeah and i do understand that like people that go on the stand probably just like get overwhelmed with like mm-hmm. nerves in general having to speak in front of so many people that they're just gonna like say what they feel in that moment feels like the truth yeah yeah so I, we don't really know for sure. And it, it's still possible that they could have made plans and then he forgot to tell his wife that he had scheduled yeah, a shift like with her dad. And yeah, and it's still possible that they could have had both plans that night, but it does me seem Me and Drew like, will schedule like 17 plans for one night and then be like, wait a second. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it does seem like they were likely working though at the yeah. meal because if David Sullivan had walked by and knocked on the door, I feel like he would have been able to corroborate that Yeah, and been like, oh yeah, then they came out searching with us yeah. and other people would have seen them searching. So I feel like that's probably the more True. likely yeah. story. The forensic pathologist, this is interesting. The one who did the autopsy on Georgia, he took the stand, Dr. Frederick A. Jaff. Okay. He also was the same forensic pathologist who performed the autopsy of Lynn Harper, who testified in the Stephen Truscott trial. Right. The one with all the gastric contents that convicted Stephen because, oh, this is the time that she must have died and he must have been with her and everything. So. Wow. Can't say that, you know, every autopsy he did was completely botched, but just thought that was, that was pointed out in the Forest City Killer. And I was like, I have to mention that because it's just so loops it all southwestern together. ontario is a very small area yeah. so david's lawyer argued that his confessions were given under duress and he tried to get both of them thrown out he also argued that his confession to the overseers should act as confessions given to a priest in confidence okay and therefore the priests going to the police like violated that like church member priest confidentiality, confidentiality yeah. whatever um and he uh, basically the judge, the the judge wasn't really buying that. He said, I think it's uh, commendable that the overseers came to the police. Yeah. Like, I think it was a good thing that they did yeah. that, obviously. Because they even to some degree were like treacherous to their own belief. But like yeah. they knew what was right. Like yeah. justice needed to be served. He acknowledged that religious pressure could have affected the validity of the confession. But he also pointed to the facts of the story that lined up perfectly with david's timeline and his confession and george's disappearance there was physical evidence dennis alsop had found her glove yeah right he had found blood in his car yeah so he was like yeah i understand like Like, they could have used religious pressure but it doesn't mean that he didn't do it yeah well even like detectives will use certain pressure tactics to get confessions so it's like yeah you can't really be like oh it's religious pressure pressure is like, pressure is okay coercion is not okay oh, no. but yeah pressure is normal and, i would say yeah um so and often necessary like yeah yeah sometimes it is for sure there was also discussion this is this is upsetting too but um it's all upsetting there was also discussion around whether georgia had actually been raped so um, because again remember this is all men yeah like, i'm not saying that like that i'm just saying like these were all men in the courtroom the le- like the yeah. lawyers like the pathologists like even the whole jury was men so yeah. um this is the way they think they were thinking at the time although the evidence was inarguable the judge decided that if david had sex with her after she was dead then it wasn't technically rape okay um, so he instructed the jury to just focus on the murder charge. No. And not get sidetracked with the rape charge, I guess. I don't. That seems 
that's like bullshit to me yeah but that's that she still suffered that like she went through that and she deserves some kind of like recognition and the evidence does show that there was there pre-mortem and post-mortem vaginal bruising it's so the way like the men of the time think where it's just like oh i can just have sex with my wife even though she's passed out on the couch it's like that mentality is just it's gross it's disgusting like so like i said it's upsetting that they even had to have that discussion but um he was like this is a murder trial so another key argument um was whether the attack was premeditated like i said because Mm -hmm. if it was premeditated then it would be considered capital murder right and david bodimer could be sentenced to death oh yeah i forgot we had the death penalty then it was um basically the death penalty was on some sort of like not like a hold but it was being i think put under review at I think the time this was like when it was like about to be canceled essentially yeah um and but it was still at this time if he was convicted he he still could have been put to death sentenced yeah because it was still it was under review but it wasn't abolished yet. yeah so basically like vanessa brown points out in in the forest city killer that the lack of knowledge around serial killers at the time meant that david's disposal methods and hiding of the evidence were seen as acting in haste and therefore indicating that it wasn't pre-planned mm. but if we if we look at it now with the things that we know yeah he kept souvenirs from the crime he dumped her body in an area where he um like it would be easy for him to revisit the scene it was on yeah. his regular route to work yeah it was secluded um there were also witnesses that the police had spoken to during the time of like searching for george's body or georgia in general who had spotted a man on the side of the road in the shrubs where her body was later found Mm. they couldn't definitively say it was david but like there was a man spotted in that area so with all of these things like we know that that would almost indicate the opposite that there was some premeditation or there was some like at least pre-fantasies yeah that you know this was going to happen at some point so they but obviously his defense was like well look at what he did he was sloppy he just threw stuff out the car like not really he got away with it for six years like yeah i wouldn't really necessarily call it sloppy at all like no but that was his defense one of the final nails in the coffin though was the fact that for the judge at least that uh, david wasn't wearing a coat on the night that georgia went missing and people went out searching for her when burt crooker sent him home Mm -hmm. saying he wasn't dressed for the cold weather the judge posed the question to the jury if he didn't have blood on his coat then where was it that night why wasn't he wearing it yeah so on june 27th 1972 david bodimer was convicted of non-capital murder okay he was sentenced to life in prison in 1972 to be served at the kingston penitentiary okay um but unfortunately as we have heard many times before life doesn't always mean life yeah so even though he appealed to the ontario court of appeals he was denied in march 1973 he appealed to the supreme court or no he was going to appeal to the supreme court and it never went ahead it like never even made it to the supreme court yeah over the span of just a decade david had continued to spin a tale about how he had gotten carried away after making advances towards Georgia and his anger from being rejected by her is what caused all of this. And he just got carried away. Yeah. His parole board, 10 years after he served his time or part of his time, um, believed him. And they sympathized with him. No. And they let him out. No. After 10 years. 
So is he still kicking it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll I, find you. Neither of these authors have been able to like, they don't know where he is right now or if he's still alive, but he was released in 1982 and he eventually became, um, he obtained a tractor trailer trucking license. That's what I mean, where that would come back. And he started driving completely free of supervision, no probation from the law all over the country. And probably cross border. Uh, I don't know if he would be able to go into no. the States having a criminal record. What if he changed his... I get Yeah, they, okay. I think they said that in the book that he wouldn't have been able to go into the States. I'm no. pretty sure. Especially like you've been convicted of murder. Yeah. Um, But all over Canada. Free to go. Ugh. And there's I, just... And that's kind of... As far as where that... Him... Like his identity goes... There aren't very many sources that know where he went after that or that anyone kept tabs on him. That's the scariest part. The government didn't. The law enforcement didn't. No. And then he just left. Like his wife obviously was. Yeah. Had disassociated. He was excommunicated from the church. Like no one that was involved in his life prior kept any connection with him. Yeah. So he was just off. I feel like that's the scariest part for me is like he's just out. He could be living in London for all we know. He could. And like you said, he could have changed his name. He would be... And like uh, someone who has these... I think I, I thought about this the other day. He would be 76, I think, right now. Uh, still pretty active. It was 76 like, or 78 when I did the math back on like... Because he was 26 when he was arrested. And I did all that before. I'm not doing yeah, it again. No, I, but, w- um, I would never do that in to his, you. In his... <laughs> thank you. It is mid to late 70s. So if he didn't die of something, he would absolutely still be alive yep. and kicking right like, now. Like, I know 70-year-olds that are, like, still be... really active and mobile and not, like, decrepit or anything. And like there would still be time for justice to be served if there were any other crimes. And I'm sure there were. All right, Dennis Alsop, get on it. Get yeah, on it. Dennis Alsop isn't alive anymore, Oh, fuck. Becky. God damn it. I didn't know that. Okay. Unless you did tell me and I completely forgot. He Well, I might have mentioned it in one of the earlier episodes. Basically, his son is the one who gave Michael Arntfield and Vanessa Brown all right. these files. Okay. I think I he f- passed. I, feel like he... I honestly think he passed in the last like five years. Oh, I don't fuck. think it was very recent. Or sorry, I don't think it was very long ago. Um, But I think he retired in like the early 2000s or late 90s. Okay. Well, then we will just have to become investigators and find yeah. him because yeah someone yeah i don't know man someone needs to track him down if nothing else but for a dna sample yeah yeah because i mean hey if if you're one of his five children submit your dna oh yeah because familial dna is like the thing right yes now. absolutely absolutely oh if, if i knew that anyone in my family was like a murderer i'd be my dna would be like just pouring out of me everywhere ancestry 23 i know i'd be like have it all of them yeah (laughs) have all of it please save some other people yeah i'm not covering up for anybody no no i i'm a snitch i'm a (laughs) fucking snitch i will rat you out (laughs) like oh man yeah well god damn it well i did not like that one one bit i know everyone's always like i don't know i don't know if you have seen the messages i know i always like jump to see them before you do like i'm very quick with it where i'll be like nah Haley's not answering (laughs) i'm fucking doing it move but like a lot of people message and say how much they love the bleeding london cases and i'm always like but why (laughs) why (laughs) they're the fucking worst because they're so close to home and i think that's why we get like extra like heated because it does feel like it's like we could know these people you know and yeah not that like other cases aren't scary for that reason no but it's of just course like, but it's just they hit like a different level oh absolutely oh 
Okay. Well, yeah. Overall, fantastic research. Loved how you shared it. Hated every minute of it. I understand. Me too. Hated every minute of reading it, even though Vanessa Brown, Michael Arnfield, great books. Recommend them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's he's They're fantastic. He's cool beans. Uh, Yeah. He's cool in our books. And and she. And she. Oh, I thought we were just talking about Michael Arnfield. No, no, no. Vanessa Brown too. Okay. Well, her too. She's she's The Forest City Killer is is like an awesome book. Yeah. Even if you're not from the area, like it's a really cool, like just investigative book. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good read. All right. Well, on that note, sign up to be super cool and join our cult of extremely awesome people who love true crime at www.patreon.com slash how to not get killed. And if you ever want to chat and connect with us, you can send us an email to how to not get killed at gmail.com. Or you can DM us or comment on our posts on Instagram at how to not get killed. And you can follow us on Twitter at H2NGK. And you can also check out our website and shop our merch at www.howtonotgetkilled.com. Thanks for listening, guys. And as always, keep it fucking motherfucking sleazy, you bitches. I love it. Yeah. Oh. See ya. Oh. Thank you.